It makes me think of a Sunday school story I heard recently. There was a man leading a Sunday school class, and he was looking to reinforce the concept of grace. And so he begins to ask the children a series of questions. His first question is, you know, if, if I sell my house and I have a, a giant garage sale and then I give all of my money to the church, will that get me into heaven? And of course, all the children in unison, they say, no. Only it didn't sound like no. If you've ever been in a Sunday school classroom, it's more like no, that kind of sound. So then he says, well, what if I go to the church and I clean up everything and I mow the yard and I keep everything neat and tidy? Will that get me into heaven again? No. Sorry, Paul Chesbro. Those things don't get you into heaven. Now, what if I treat my animals kindly and I give all kinds of candy to kids. Now he's really testing them, isn't he? Will that get me into heaven? Again, class, no. So then he asks, what will get me into heaven? What do I got to do to get to heaven? And one of the boys in the back of the class yells out, you got to (laughs) die. Now, I promise you that that didn't happen at this church, and it was not Paisley Kleppel who said that. (laughs) You see, there's this thing about grace, just when you think you have it, just when you think you have it mastered, you realize that you really don't. I mean, we look at God and we say, how could God forgive us and require nothing from us How could he extend this unmerited favor to us? But he says it in his own word. We looked at it last week. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one will boast. You can't add to perfection. You cannot add to it. The equation is always Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Anytime I add something to the nothing, I start messing up the gospel. I start messing up grace. I start messing up salvation. You know, the salvation that we're looking at this morning in the book of Ephesians is a comprehensive salvation. Sometimes we minimize this salvation Sometimes we treat this salvation like it is only a ticket to heaven. But I tell you, it's so much more than that. It it, it comprehensively changes who we are, and not just me individual, but who we are as people. Because come to find out, as you look at the Word of God, we're so broken. And unless God changes me from the inside out, I would bring that brokenness into heaven. And let me just say this, it's no longer heaven if I bring my brokenness there. See, in the book of Ephesians, there are two great acts of restoration that we look at. The first we looked at last week. It said that you are spiritually dead, but you've been made alive in Christ Jesus. The second great act of restoration we're going to look at this morning, you were alienated. 
but you have been brought near in Christ Jesus. You know what alienation means? Alienation most fundamentally means that sin causes broken down relationships. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with one another. So we're not only just spiritually broken, but we're also relationally broken. And part of the reason Christ came is to mend the relational disasters that we create. So Paul begins to describe this relational brokenness. He begins by talking about a dynamic of the Gentiles before they came to Christ. Now, if you're asking the question, what in the world is a Gentile? It's very simple. A Gentile is not a Jew. So most of us in this room are Gentiles, according to that definition. Now listen to what he says about these Gentiles in verses 11 and 12. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now notice what Paul's doing here. He's saying that the Gentiles were the spiritual have-nots and that the Jews were the spiritual haves. They had a spiritual leg up in every way. He talks about that in Romans chapter 9. He said, they Israelites, uh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the gifting of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. If you're ever looking for a scripture to tell us that Jesus is God, it's right there. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what does this mean for Gentiles? Well, spiritually, they're disadvantaged in five ways. As we saw there in Ephesians 2, they're separated from Christ, meaning they don't have a spiritual expectation for a Messiah before Jesus came. It says that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This is dealing with what nation you were born into. The next part says that they were strangers to the covenants and promises. Now think about this. All of those Old Testament promises that you cherish when you read the Bible, like promises like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Without Christ, those are not your promises. Those are Israel's promises. So then you have no hope, he says. And he says you're without God. Now, the Greek word without God is the word atheos, which we derive our term atheist from. You find in the Bible that a person is an atheist not only because they do not believe in God, but also because they do not believe in the true God. William Hendrickson summarized it in this way. 
He says they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. It's a big problem. You want to know why? You cannot change where you were born. That's a fundamental fact of life. You can't change where you were born. And there's one nation that God chose to work through, and if you were not in that nation, you did not have access to the spiritual advantages. Now, you might be asking yourself the question, why is God being so exclusive in all of this? But let me assure you this morning, God is not being exclusive by choosing Israel and working through them. You have to understand that one of the ramifications of sin is that humanity became fractured, really fractured. You go into the first book of the Bible, Genesis, you start seeing relationships breaking down at fundamental levels, husbands and wives. A brother kills a brother. There's a guy named Lamech, and he starts bragging that he's killed more people than Cain. They start fracturing into tribal groups, and then you get to the Tower of Babel, and all of these languages and people groups disperse out of Babel. Now, how is God supposed to get into the middle of all of that? Well, he has to start somewhere. He has to start working through a people. The Bible in the Old Testament tells us that the purpose of the nation of Israel was actually to be a light unto the Gentiles. They were supposed to be his people, bearing his testimony, carrying his name. So as the nations watched Israel be blessed, there would be an attractiveness to this, and they would be attracted to Israel's God. But what happened? Well, Israel becomes isolationist which then means that the Gentiles grew further and further separated from the living God. You see, it turns out that one of the consequences of human sin is human disparity. Okay, not everything's equal now. Not everyone has the same access to the same things as everyone else. I remember watching a um, video that helped me to realize the reality that we don't live in a world of equal opportunity, equal fairness, equal access. What they did in this video is they took 20 college students and they lined them up at a start line for a 100-yard race. And they told them, run as fast as you can, winner takes all. But before they sounded off the race gun, they started advantaging some, advantaging some runners and disadvantaging other runners. They took one runner and they moved that runner up by 50 yards and they said to that runner, you grew up with excessive wealth. They took another runner and advantaged that person 20 yards. They said to her, you had access to world-class education. And then most of the runners, of course, they were left at the line or some of them placed behind the line. They sound off the gun and guess who wins? It's the racer that had 50 yards of advantage. Now, was he the fastest of all of them? Well, we'll never know. Uh, were the runners that were placed behind the line, were they slower than anyone else? I don't think so. They were just unfortunate. They didn't get 
the, the luxury of being born into privilege. You know, it turns out, as you think about all of this dynamic, that privilege does give you a leg up, so to speak, but you can choose to squander the privilege, right? We've all watched someone who had wealth, who had educational opportunity, who had intelligence and and all of that skills and competence, and they squandered it. They threw it all away. Turns out that you can do that from a spiritual point of view, too. You grow up in a Christian home. It doesn't mean that you grow up and you will love God and follow Him. John the Baptist was dealing with this in his own day. He was speaking to the culture, pushing back against this Jewish entitlement that they had developed. And in Matthew 3, 9, he said, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. You know what he's saying? He's saying all of those things are spiritually irrelevant in God's eyes. Just because your mom loved Jesus, just because your grandmother loves Jesus, just because you had parents who were faithful does not mean that you love Jesus or that you're following Jesus. You see, God, as we look in the Bible, He's not interested in creating a group of spiritual haves and a group of spiritual have-nots. No, God sent Christ into the world to level the playing field. Look at verse 13. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So how did he do this? Well, we go into the next verses, verse 14 through 17. Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, the two key words in this section are the word peace and the word reconcile. Now, why are these words important? Well, think about the spiritual dynamic here. So, the problem in verses 12 and 13 are compounded. Not only are the Gentiles spiritually disadvantaged because they don't grow up with all of these things Israel had, but we also come to find out in these verses that they're hated by the Jews. Hated. Now, think about this. When you hate someone, You don't reach out to them. You don't seek their good. And you certainly don't pass along the insider tips that you have. And let's just say this, Israel had the insider tips. How much did they hate the Gentiles? Well, listen to what Barclay says. He said the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles 
said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent to death. So, when Paul says things are hostile in this text, they were hostile. Let me assure you of that. I just heard someone even yesterday make the comparison and say, oh, the Gentile and Jewish divide was very similar to the Democrat and Republican divide in our culture. And I was like, no, that's not correct. Uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of rough and we need to work on that. But this was like real hatred here that we're talking about. I think as a culture, we somewhat struggle with understanding these ancient hostilities. Okay, we're a couple hundred years old as a culture. Uh, yes, we have some hostilities that go back, like the racial divide that exists in our country. But I tell you, I, I don't quite get some of these ancient hostilities. I just traveled in December to the Middle East and you start hearing it. I mean, hostilities that go back generations. Parents passed it on to their children who passed it on to their children. Hundreds of years, thousands of years old. Give it a little time here. Give us a couple thousand years and we'll develop those hostilities. Why? Because sin makes us relationally broken. And we pass that brokenness down through the generations. You know, it's countercultural to love your enemy. It's normal to hate them. It's countercultural to work out your differences with people. Dividing neatly around those differences, that's normal. It's countercultural to say what's mine is yours. It's normal to be territorial, to put up privacy fences, to close our shutters, to go virtual instead of being in person. People are like bluegill on the spawning bed. Did you know that? Now, I've been a fisherman, and if you're not a fisherman, you might not realize this, but in the springtime, go down and look at the bluegills while they're on their nests. You see, the bluegills divide themselves in these neat little honeycomb patterns, and in the middle of the honeycomb, they lay their eggs, and then the mother bluegill or the father bluegill, I can't remember which one, sits in the middle of the nest, and they put their nest really close to one another. And they are hyper-aggressive about protecting the nest. If one of the bluegills needs to get across the lane, they're actually like swimming this honeycomb pattern on the boundaries because they know if they enter into the space of that bluegill, 
they're going to get attacked. Now, this hyper-territorial behavior makes them easy pickings. It's good for me. Because all I do is I just take a worm on a hook and I throw it in the middle of the nest. And that bluegill, even if it doesn't care about food, doesn't think about eating, doesn't want anything to do with it, it will attack that worm. And then I get dinner that evening. I wonder if Satan uses our own hostilities in the same way against us. Hmm. I'm telling you, we're like bluegill. We can find any reason to divide. How much money do you make? What's the color of your skin? Why do you not like talking about politics? Which political party do you support? What are your positions on masks and vaccines? What's the right way to raise your kids? On and on it goes. These are not ancient hostilities like Jew and Gentile. No, these are new hostilities. And guess what? We're really good at making new hostilities, just as good as we are at holding on to old hostilities. And you could put 10 clones into a room, and I guarantee you, given enough time, those 10 clones would find something that is different about one another and divide over it. So how does Christ enter into this mess and bring about peace and reconciliation? Well, listen to the five things that Paul says. One, he broke down the wall of hostility. Now that is talking about the temple. There was actually a physical wall that separated the Gentiles from access to God and access to worship. They had a sign that said, enter Gentile on the pain of death. Not very inviting. Imagine if we put that at the front of the door of the church. When Christ, that access wall, is broken down. Two, he abolished the law of the commandments. No longer as a Gentile do you have to fulfill this ceremonial law system that the Jews kept. He created one new man in the place of two. He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. Five, he preached peace to the far and the near. Now the core of all of this is verse 16. Christ reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now here's a question. How does the cross, an instrument of death, kill hostility? How does death kill hate? Well, the answer is this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Your sin and, and my sin, it was so ugly that the Son of God had to be laid upon a cross, had to expire His life to die in our place. And we only approach God then in one way. There's no leg up. There's no disadvantage. It doesn't matter how much money I have or lack thereof. It doesn't matter if my skin color causes me to stick out or if I fit in neatly with everyone else. It doesn't matter if I speak a different language. It doesn't matter where I was born, when I was born, whom I was born to. I can only approach God in one way, by the blood of Jesus. I, like you, must believe 
that he died in my place, I, like you, must believe that it is by grace that I'm saved through faith. Church, if this is true, then what are the outcomes of this cross, this powerful dynamic that Christ brought about? Well, look at the next couple of verses. We'll go to verse 18, and we'll make our way through the rest of the passage He says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple In the Lord, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the outcome of the cross is the formation of the church. The outcome of Jesus' bloody death is the gathering together of a unique people that become God's universal people all over the world. And what I love about this church is that everything that matters out there makes no difference in here as far as your value is concerned. Are you considered rich out there? doesn't matter in here. Are you considered someone who doesn't fit in out there? Well, guess what? You fit in here. Does your skin color matter out there? Well, it doesn't matter in here. That isn't to say that diversity isn't beautiful. God delights in bringing about unity in the midst of diversity, and that diversity should be celebrated in here, but it doesn't ontologically matter in here. What does it mean that something ontologically matters? What I mean by that is it doesn't fundamentally define who you are. Christ fundamentally defines who you are. And if Christ fundamentally defines who I am, then I need to know who I am. This is who you are, Ephesians chapter 1. You are chosen. You are adopted. You are lavished with grace because you have been redeemed and forgiven by Christ. You are in You know the mysteries of God's will. You have an inheritance. This is an eternal inheritance. And how do I know that this inheritance is going to come about? You were sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And if that's true, if all of that's true for you, and it's true for me, then verses 19 to 22 start making a lot more sense. We are fellow citizens. We are members of of God's family, we are a holy temple. In Christ, we are not many. In Christ, we are one. That's what I call ultimate relational repair. Okay, Jesus didn't come into the world to throw a little bondo on a car. He didn't want to just slap a band-aid upon a critical wound. No, Jesus came into the world to fundamentally change everything. Everything. He gave each one of us a new identity. 
And we all share in that same identity together. Now think about the implications of that. The first implication is this. Whatever is different about us is now overcome by what is the same about us. So as you look at this room right now, let me tell you, there are differences. But those differences are not what overcomes the dynamic of this room. In fact, we celebrate the differences. Different is good. But what we share in common is far more important than what is different about us. Look at Galatians 3.28. Paul talks about this. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I've traveled all over the world. I have been an alien, a foreigner. I've gone into cultures where I don't stand a chance of learning the language, where I didn't understand the cultural customs. In fact, sometimes I crossed a line culturally that I didn't understand that I was crossing. But here's the thing. When I entered into spaces with Christians, we were calling one another brother and sister. Why? Because what's the same about us is far more important than what is different. You know, we mess up the unity of the church when we start elevating what's different above what's the same. I just heard at Thrive Conference that the church of 40 split over politics. And the guy's like, how does a church of 40 split? Well, they were elevating what's different over what's the same. You can do this in all kinds of different ways. You can be the church that's for the 20-somethings. You can be the church that, you know, everybody kind of thinks this way politically. All of those things ultimately mess up the unity of the church when they're elevated above what's the same. I pray for OBC one day that God would just continue to grow the multicultural nature of this church. I love diversity. When I see a a diverse church, I feel like I'm in the book of Revelation looking at the church in heaven because it says that they were from all, every tribe, tongue, and language, and they were singing praise to the Lord. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm impatient for heaven. I want heaven here now. And I would love to see heaven start to take root in this church as we grow more and more diverse. It's not a sin to be impatient for heaven. Let's think about another implication here. One more implication. Notice in verses 21 and 22, he says that we are being joined and grown together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, here's the implication. We can only be a dwelling place for God together. I can't be a dwelling place for God all by myself You see, Paul is cutting down the weeds of individualism which have crept into the church over the last hundred or so years. We tend to think of spiritual growth as something that I do. I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I serve. 
I help the poor. But there is a problem with that kind of thinking. A single stone does not make a very good temple. And just think about it. You see a stone sitting off all by itself, and it's like, I'm a temple. No, you ain't. You ain't a temple. You look like a piece of debris. That's all you look like. No, it, it requires the church to come together in unity. The church needs to be joined. The church needs to be groaned. That's a corporate activity. So God dwells with us as we read the Bible. We pray. We go to church. We serve. We meet the needs of the poor. Now, when you come to church, let's just be honest, sometimes it feels like you're just going through the motions. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. I know all of us would raise our hand. It feels like that. Like, ah, I don't know if I've got it in me this week. I got stuff going on or whatever it is. If you're a parent <laughs> trying to get the kids out of the house every week, you know, like one of them's running around in their underwear and you're like, come on, man, like we've got to get to church. What are you doing right now? You're killing me. You're not going through the motions. No, each week as you come to church, you're actively being relationally grafted and grown and joined together with the people of God. It's a, it's a relational dynamic, and, and relational dynamics take consistency. It takes week after week for these kind of things to happen. That's why in our membership class, I promote this participation point in membership called every member, or every Sunday. The habit of church attendance is so important to the process of being joined and growing together. Now, what I see as I look out at what God's doing on Sunday mornings is I see a masterpiece being built. I believe God's building a masterpiece here at Osterville Baptist Church. And he's doing it in churches all across the world every single Sunday as believers gather together. Now, here's the thing. I can't be a part of that masterpiece all by myself. Again, I might be that lone stone and feel like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I feel strong. I feel independent. Like, I'm a really big stone. Look at me. I'm huge. And I just say to that person, you do you, boo. Because frankly, frankly, I want to be at the very core of the masterpiece. And I know you do too. And the more that we come together, the more we do this church thing together. That's just what the Holy Spirit's doing in and through us. Lord, this morning as we join our hearts together before you, we don't take it lightly what we've read in your word this morning. You've done two great of acts of restoration in our life. First, we were dead, but we've been made alive in Christ. Second, we were alienated, but now we're brought near in Christ. This beautiful masterpiece that you're building called the church, Lord, sometimes we look at it and we, we just can't 
see the masterpiece because church can be messy. But Lord, you're the great artist. You're the great builder. And you're doing something each Sunday here. Things that have eternal consequence, eternal significance, Lord. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you just continue to build the stones of this church, that you would bring more stones to this church. Lord, we want to be a diverse church. I pray that all these things would come about. We can't make these things happen, Lord. We can try to manufacture unity, but Lord, it's just a cheap imitation. It's just paint, cheap paint on the scratches and dents. We need the Holy Spirit to fundamentally do this work in and through us week after week. So we pray to that end, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.